Welcome to Birkegaard. It is uh, 4.30 a.m. here in uh, central Pennsylvania. It's a chilly 57 degrees inside my kitchen. I don't turn on my heat uh, in my house. I have electric baseboard heat. I do have a, uh, a um, infrared heater that sits in my living room that I'll crank up on occasion when it gets a little bit too chilly. But I'm a cold weather person, so 57 with a hoodie is completely fine. Um, but yeah, it's 4.30. I woke up rested, so no need to lay in bed. There's things to do, books to read, podcasts to share. Oh man, life is good. Hope you're doing well. We're going to get started today and uh, just kind of get straight to it. And then I'll do all the details afterwards um, in terms of personal uh, reflection uh, on stories that may or may not be directly related to Soren. Uh, just things I'm learning. Uh, and then some other details that are interesting. So... Uh, last week we got into the clever one, and I decided just to read the remaining part of this chapter. It's uh, it's about four or five pages, but Soren uh, Soren really hits his hits his uh, stride here. And uh, we talked about last week how he talks more overtly about God. Now he's getting into actually uh, the second person of the Trinity in Christian theology, Jesus Christ, both the God Man. That's what at the that's what Anselm uh, called him, the God-Man, not Athanasius. Athanasius uh, was the uh, was the uh, historical figure that defended the Trinity and the deity of Christ, Athanasius, against uh, the Arians, or Arius was the man, but Arians were the people that believed that Jesus was not God, but was a special man. Uh, but Anselm uh, called him the God-Man, and he wrote a book, I think, called Why the God-Man?, so there's a little little historical stuff for you. All right, page 134. The clever one therefore accomplishes much. Let us uh, once think uh, through this uh, thought to accomplish something in the world. Uh, one hears so much of both impatient and misleading talk about this. Uh, to be sure, it is well all should wish to do something. Uh, it is indeed earnestness to desire it. But should it not also be earnestness, earnestness to understand in oneself and in life precisely what is meant by saying that one man accomplished such an exceptional amount of uh, exceptional amount, or that another man seems to accomplish nothing at all? At all. Uh, suppose the temporal order, and temporal is just another word for being in time. Uh, it's the uh, kind of the uh, antonym of eternal. I'm drinking some Ethiopian Harar coffee today. That's a region in Ethiopia, Harar, H-A-R-R-A-R. Uh, suppose uh, the temporal order is not understood as it pictures itself, but rather as the recognizable fact that it is a reality. Uh, suppose the temple, temporal order was a homogeneous, transparent medium of the eternal, uh, that every uh, then every eternal volition in ma in a man and every volition of the eternal would straightway become perceptible in the temporal order if the same kind of powers of comprehension be assumed in the temporal order colon so that when a man who wills does get on in the temporal order it is accounted to be something in the eyes of the many uh, the eternal volition in a man would be plainly evident, just as the uh, quantity 
Of a cry is obvious by the quality of the sound in the room. Just as when a stone is cast into the water, its size is evident by the size of the circle it makes. If matters stood like this between the temporal order and the eternal, so that they answer each other as the echo answers to the sound, then that which is accomplished would be a trustworthy rendering of the eternal volition in a man. Uh, by what a man had accomplished, one could immediately see how much will toward the eternal there was in him, but in that case it could never have come to pass in the temple order in order to mention the highest and the most horrible, but also what is key that explains it all, that God's Son, as he was revealed in human form, was crucified, repudiated by the temple order, uh, for he truly willed the eternal in the eternal sense, and yet the temporal order he became distinguished by being repudiated, and so accomplished but little, or it appeared to be little, I would say as an aside. It appeared as if it was a done deal. And this is going to be a long passage, so I have to take uh, deep breaths of air and also copious sips of coffee to get me through and maybe you do too as it had happened to god's son so it went with the apostles which is true uh, out of the 12 original apostles uh, judas hung himself because he betrayed jesus and then he was replaced by matthias i think through a drawing of straws or something uh, but out of that 12 only the apostle john died a natural death Every other one of the apostles was martyred in some way or other, in some imaginative way. Um, the apostle John was boiled in oil, apparently, and still survived, so he must have been extra crispy. I'm sure it affected his skin. But he lived to an old age and wrote the book of Revelation on Patmos, uh, the island of Patmos, when he was... Uh, expelled from the empire, uh, or exiled, as it had happened to God's son, so it went with the apostles, just as they themselves had expected, and he, uh, Jesus did told them, uh, did tell them, <laughs> did tell them, not told them, did tell them uh, that they would uh, not, uh, not uh, be welcomed by the world, um, and uh, that they would experience similar, similar fate that he did as they themselves had expected, and so it has gone with so many witnesses of the good and the true in whom this eternal will has burned, burned fiercely. It is obvious, then, that the temple order cannot be the transparent medium of the eternal. In its given reality, the temporal order is in conflict with the eternal. This makes the determination to accomplish something less plain. The more active the eternal is toward the witness, the stronger is the cleavage. The more the striver, excuse me for my uh, nose uh, running a bit, the more the striver, instead of willing the eternal, is linked with the temporal existence, the more he accomplishes in the sense of the temporal existence, which is a factual statement, I think it that would be true enough. So it is in many ways or in all possible ways in the temporal order. When a peculiar thinker who just by his peculiarity is more tied up with the eternal and less with time's moment 
addresses his speech to men he has rarely understood or listened to. When, on the other hand, a voluble follower comes to his aid in order that the peculiar one can become misunderstood, then it succeeds, then there are many who instantly understand it. The thinker becomes a kind of superfluous element in life. The follower, an effective man who accomplished such an extraordinary amount in the temporal order. Only upon a rare occasion does it ever happen that the eternal and the temporal's accomplishments conform after a fashion to each other by accident. For let us not insult God and the God-man, uh, which again is a term that Anselm uh, coined. Uh, he was a uh, British English back in, I think, the 10th or 11th century, something like that. Uh, for uh, it was clergyman, uh, Catholic, of course. For let us not insert insult God and the God man by assuming that what happened to him there was an accident, that his life expressed something accidental, perhaps something that he had, perhaps something had he lived at another time among other people would not have happened to him. Time to take a, a sinus break here. Hold on a moment. It's amazing in podcasts to me that um, that all that stuff is edited out. I don't know. I guess it's good not to be too uh, too human or to uh, to exhibit any kind of signs of being human. I don't know. I think we have to be real. If then there is to be significance in all the talk and the talk about accomplishing, a distinction must be made between the momentary and the eternal view of things. There are two opposed; uh, these are two opposed views, which each man has to choose between in regard to his own striving, in regard to um, uh, each contemporary striving. For us to judge by outcomes whereby an attempt is made to unite a judgment of temporal existence and of eternity into a judgment that comes after the event is past is not humanly possible in the instant that a man himself acts, nor is it possible in the instant when, uh, when others act. Again, another part two of the sinus here. I really have to try not to minimize that in order to make it effective. If I'm trying to work around it, it's just going to continue the problem. All right, deep breath. Uh, sip of coffee here. Mm-hmm. All right, so we're about halfway through here, the remaining of the chapter, I think. Let me keep on going. So hopefully you're picking up on this so far. Soren's uh, delineating the difference between the temporal and the eternal and how often in time, in space and time, that eternal acts are disregarded. They're seen as uh, irrelevant, uh, facetious. And uh, Soren would certainly turn the tables on that and say it's just the opposite. It's the uh, temporal, temporal acts that are often facetious or foolish or all those kind of words. Uh, by the help of this of a, of a sense deception, a living generation often believes itself able to pass judgment on a past generation because it misunderstood the good. We all, uh, this is just an aside, I've heard this term before, chronological snobbery. All right? We uh, think we're so sophisticated in the 21st century compared to uh, people in the 17th century, and that's true because we were born on their shoulders, so to speak, that the things they did, the things they accomplished, created the way for us, but we wouldn't be here without them. 
Uh, we forget maybe in, in three centuries from now, we are going to look like cavemen in comparison or barbarians or brutes or whatever. Um, and we also think that we would act better than they did when, when in fact, uh, this age, when it's put under a microscope by uh, generations to come, if we get there, uh, I have my doubts sometime that we're going to be able to reconcile the issues at hand. Uh, who knows? Uh, I'm not going to be a doomsday person, but I also think it's wise not to be not to be uh, too Pollyannish about it. Uh, but I think it's fair to say that we have chronological snobbery. One example is, for example, in orthodoxy or Christian teaching. Uh, there's a lot of pastors these days that you know discover other books that are supposedly written in the Christian tradition that were you know repudiated many many centuries centuries ago because they they were not faithful to the gospel they were forgeries they were counterfeit and a lot of that's like gnostic stuff like the gospel of thomas but there's other like uh, books out there that could have been part of the bible that were denied uh canon canonicity because they were seen to not be consistent with the christian message and it's not a it's not a power play it's 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 uh, using a certain uh, objective standard of what establishes credibility versus non-credibility and there's books out there like the dk which are good um like good teaching for uh unbaptized christians to become christians they're called catchments uh, so that's true um that there's books that could be helpful uh, but we're not conceded uh, perceived to be uh, can canon material but you know we have these people in the 21st century that now uh, go back and read these books, and it's uh, Gnostic wisdom, and it's it's dark knowledge, and it's it appears to be mysterious, and all of a sudden they become uh, infatuated with it, and we think that these uh, these people that sat on church councils many many centuries ago, often in the third, fourth, and fifth century, and beyond that, uh, you know we tend to think they were. Uh, uneducated, stupid people that couldn't read and couldn't think. And that's chronological snobbery. So when we go back to the well, that we start to resurrect some of this material, we're going to have to go through a second, a second kind of um, examination of this material and repudiate it the way it was repudiated to start with. Uh, it really frustrates me that a lot of people don't know enough about it that when a, a preacher gets tickling, uh, tickling, wants to tickle ears, they'll often bring out this stuff and think that they're uh, avant-garde or the new way or whatever, and all it is is baloney, man. By the help of a uh, sense deception, a living generation often believes itself to be able to pass judgment on a past generation because it misunderstood the good, and it is even guilty of committing the same offense against a contemporary. Well, that's true. And yet it is uh, just in regard to his contemporary that a man should know whether he has the view of the moment or the view of the eternal. At some later date, it is no art to decorate the graves of the noble and to say, if they only had lived now, now, just as we start, uh, just as we are starting in to do the same thing against a contemporary. Uh, so Jesus had that saying that, you know, woe to you who uh, decorate the graves of the prophets because uh, your, your forefathers killed the prophets, but now you honor the prophets because they're no longer prophesying against you. Uh, so a lot of religious types back in the day uh, who were in first century Israel with Jesus would pay homage to the prophets and decorate their graves without really owning the fact that their ancestors were the ones that killed the prophets. And if the prophets had lived during the time of Jesus, they would have killed 
him too, just like John the Baptist was killed. And Jesus was a prophet. He was more than a prophet, and he was killed. Uh, so we have to admit that we uh, we would be guilty of the same things. If Jesus walked the planet right now, who knows? Uh, you know, he had to come at a certain time and space in order to fulfill the Jewish prophecies. Uh, but if he came now, it would be quite likely that he would be repudiated just like he was originally. I'm not sure he would have been crucified. He would have been canceled probably. All social media accounts would have been shut down. He wouldn't have had a job. He might have been killed. Who knows? At some later date, it is no art to decorate the graves of the noble and to say if that had only lived now. Now, just as we are starting in to do the same thing against a contemporary, we're just as guilty. For the difficulty in the test of what dwells in the one who judges is precisely the contemporary. The view of the moment is the opinion which is an earthly and busy sense decides whether... I didn't quite get that sentence correct, but I won't do it again. You get the gist. Decides whether a man accomplishes anything or not. And in, in this sense, nothing in the world has ever been so completely lost as was Christianity at the time of Christ was crucified. And in the understanding of the moment, never in the world has anyone accomplished so little by the sacrifice of a consecrated life as did Jesus Christ. And yet in the same instant, he eternally understood he accomplished all. For he did not foolishly judge by the result that was not yet there, or more rightly, for here is the conflict and battleground of the two interpretations of what is meant by accomplishing. The result was indeed there. Question his contemporaries, if you ever meet them. Do they not say of the crucified, the fool, he would help others, but he cannot help himself. That was a an insult that was hurled on him while he was being crucified by the passers-by people that stopped and looked and kept moving but took the time to say something insulting to Jesus. Human nature, quite perverse. Uh, but now the outcome also shows so that everyone may see what he was. Uh, there's an end note there, 25, and I'm not sure exactly what that's about. Was it not said by his contemporaries, especially where the clever led the conversation, the fool... He who had it in his power to become king, if he cared to make use of this of his opportunity, if he had only half my cleverness, he would have been the king. In the beginning, I really believed that it was ingenuity, that he let these people express themselves in this fashion without wishing to give himself up to them. I believe it was a trick in order to inflame them still more. But now the result shows clearly enough what I more recently have myself been quite clear about that he is a shallow blind visionary was it not said by many intelligent men and women the result shows that he has been hunting after fantasies uh, that he uh, should have married in this way he would now have been a distinguished teacher of israel uh, that's a bit of a factual statement that if you were a rabbi and you were not married you were an oddity man and Jesus wasn't married. The scriptures would have taught that he was. Again, this is kind of retrospective. Hip avant-garde preachers these days start to theorize that um, Jesus was uh, in a sexual relationship with uh, Mary Magdalene and all kinds of weird stuff. You know, they, they take their modern understanding and apply it to biblical stories where there's no evidence that can be conjectured that that is a factual truth or that David and uh, Jonathan were 
homosexual lovers. No, they were friends. It's possible for males to be friends without being homosexually attracted to each other and even to love each other. Not all love is sexual. Uh, that's, a, that's a misreading of the word love. Uh, love does have different elements. It has an erotic element at times. It can. But there's other types of love, uh, the uh, philia, storge, uh, agape, that are not sexual. And it is possible for men to love each other without wanting to engage in uh, sexual activity. I'll leave it at that. Uh, but modern people don't believe that, so they sexualize it. <clears throat> and they read back into these stories some legitimacy for their behavior, which is wrong. And it's evil. And don't do that. Uh, people don't know better. And yet, eternally understood, the crucified one had in the same moment accomplished all. But the view of the moment and the view of eternity over the same matter has never stood in such atrocious opposition. That's a good term there. Well, it's a good term in one way. It's like a perfect storm. It's perfect in its destruction. Uh, atrocious opposition. That is a great uh, that's a great statement, very powerful, very trenchant, very truculent, or trenchant is the word, truculent's not, uh, trenchant, atrocious opposition. So Jesus Christ encountered atrocious opposition. It says in Corinthians, uh, Paul wrote that the uh, the cross is a scandal, uh, the Latin word is scandalon, uh, to the Jews who could not believe that God could become man, and it's foolishness to the Greek because uh, the Greek thought the idea of God's coming down to earth and being actually God and behaving better than men was kind of foolishness. All their gods were, um, I don't know, it was kind of like the Murray Povich show or something. The gods were just as bad as human beings were. Zeus was a, you know, was a, a brawler and a knucklehead and all kinds of stuff. Uh, so the idea that God, the perfect, could become man uh, really uh, blew the mind of the Jews and it was a scandal. And that God could be better than man uh, was a, was foolishness to the Greek, I guess. It, I don't know if I entirely processed that correctly, but that's from Corinthians. It can never be repeated. So atrocious opposition. This could happen only to him, yet eternally understood he had in the same moment accomplished all. And on that account said with eternity's wisdom, it is finished. <clears throat> So the Romans and the Jewish leadership also thought it was finished. They thought it was the end of Christianity on the cross. Like Nietzsche said, that there was one Christian in the world and he died on a cross. Nietzsche, of course, was not a believer. His dad was a Lutheran pastor. Uh, but Nietzsche was a nihilist, a nihilist. Uh, and um, so there was one Christian who died on a cross. So the world wanted to say that uh, it was finished too, that they, they, they had rid themselves of Jesus. And, uh, you know, it's a matter of great controversy what happened afterwards uh, unlike islam christianity in the first three centuries was not spread by the sword uh, islam early on became a militaristic religion and it was only until the uh, constantinian period did christianity uh, get acclimated into the state officially and uh, began to bear the sword and there's a lot of bad with that but there's some good too uh, the, in the Roman Empire, as it existed in the 4th century around Constantine, only the Christians could be depended upon. Everybody else was corrupt. And, you know, if I have a police officer or a judge, I'd prefer them to be a Christian than not because maybe they'll be actually uh, justice-oriented and merciful versus a wicked, self-serving, angerizing individual. 
So the Constantinian stuff is typically seen as very, very negative, but it had some positives too. And it wasn't a complete abdication of the spiritual calling, but it is a historical fact for the first three centuries of Christianity's rise that it did not prosper in any sense by state state promotion uh, through the sword or official doctrine and all that. For it is not after the passage of 1,800 years that he will now again appear. And referring to the outcome, say it is finished. In contrast to this, he would not say that. Perhaps uh, it would require many centuries before he would be able to say that in regard to temporal existence. Yet um, what he is unable to say after the passage of 18 triumphant centuries, he said, in his own age, 18 centuries ago, in the very moment when all was lost, eternally understood, he said, it is finished. It is finished, he said, uh, that just when the mass of the people and the priests and the Roman soldiers, Herod and Pilate and the idle ones on the street, the crowd and the gateway and the newspaper reporters, if there were any at such at the time, in short, when all the powers of the moment, however different their sentiments might have been, we're agreed upon this view of the matter that all was lost, hopelessly lost, it is finished. He said, nail, uh, he said, nailed to the cross as he was at the very time when his mother stood there as if nailed to the cross too, when his disciples' eyes were as if nailed to the cross by horror at the sight. Hence motherhood and faithfulness submitted to the moment's view of the matter that all was lost. Oh, then let us by the most hor- this most horrible thing which once took place and that it happened only once is not to the world's credit, but rather that the crucified one is eternally and essentially different from every other man. Let us learn wisdom in the lesser relationships. Let us never deceive youth by foolish talk about the matter of accomplishing. So we're coming up to the last paragraph here. No one could say today that I only rambled. (laughs) I'm letting uh, I'm letting Soren speak completely, and then we'll get into my own reflection here in a minute. <coughs> Let us okay. So the last paragraph. Here we go. The final lap. Uh, there's more of this book to come. Uh, we're on page 140, and it goes to like 216 and beyond, 218, 219. So we still have a decent amount of reading to do. Soren's not done with us yet. And guess what? There's like 29 other books to read. Let us never make them busy in the service of the moment. Instead of in patience, willing something eternal, let us not make them quick to judge what they perhaps do not understand. Instead of willing something eternal and being content with little for themselves, let us rightly consider that a generation is not one, is not on that account superior because it understands that a previous generation acted wrongly. If in the present moment they themselves do not understand how to discriminate between the momentary and the eternal aspect of this thing at the, of the thing at hand. As a school counselor, I obviously wanted my students to be knowledgeable and to be intelligent, to be smart, but not just in a factual way. I wanted them to have wisdom. Man. And I also wanted them to be good people. I wanted them to be moral people. I wanted them to be ethical. Um, Because I grew up in an area where people had a lot of money. They had a lot of privilege and a lot of prestige and a lot of prosperity. But underneath that surface, uh, there was a lot of misery. And there was a lot of pain. And there was a lot of suffering and a lot of evil. 
And so for me, with my students, if they had like a character, uh, character flaw or something that was going to really replicate in a bad way if it wasn't dealt with, I was pretty hard about it. If they were dishonest or if they were a cheater or they were a bully or they were discriminating, you know, I would be kind of uh, unrelenting as a school counselor to try to address those issues and try to root them out because I felt like if it wasn't dealt with when they were young, it was going to affect their trajectory and hurt themselves and hurt other people. And things like addictions, you know, if a kid was reckless about uh, alcohol or illegal drugs or something or to pornography, you know, whatever it was, you know, deal deal with it when it's on its uh, on its smaller side versus when it gets bigger and harder to deal with because it just replicates. You know, a weed a weed patch that's not dealt with becomes a bigger weed patch, and you have to go in there with your bare hands sometimes and root it out, and not use poison on it. You have to uh, be smarter than that. So I'm going to read this thing. Kierkegaard explains Christmas, but it's all about the incarnation. And this is uh, about five pages long. Uh, we're at 29 minutes right now. Again, my new standard's probably going to be about 40 minutes for this podcast. Uh, just to give you a heads up, this is not by accident. Kierkegaard explains Christmas. This was published by uh, the Encouragement Leader blog by Northwake uh, Church, I think it is. And the individual's name is Ken Keithley. Ken, uh, K-E-N, Keithley, K-E-H-T-H-L-E-Y. Uh, North Wake member and director of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture and senior professor of theology at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, Wake Forest, North Carolina. So give credit where credit's due. I don't, I don't pilfer people's work. If I use it, I quote it. I don't pretend like it's my own. I try to be honest about that to the degree I can remember where I got things. And if I can't remember, I try to be honest about that too. The philosopher Soren Kierkegaard lived, in a, lived a brief life of only 42 years in Denmark in the 19th century. In his Philosophical Fragments, which is another book, he tells a parable entitled The King and the Maiden in an attempt to explain some of God's motivations behind the incarnation. The parable goes like this, as retold by David Jeremiah. And David Jeremiah is a, is a preacher. And a good one. Imagine there was a king who loved a humble maiden. She had no royal pedigree, no education, no standing in the royal court. She dressed in rags. She lived in a hovel. She lived in uh, lived the ragged life of a peasant. But for some reason, and for reasons no one could quite figure out, the king fell in love with this girl in the way that kings sometimes do. Why he should love her was beyond explaining, but love her he did, and he could not stop loving her. One day there awoke in the heart of the king an anxious thought. How in the world is he going to reveal his love to this girl? How could he bring? Uh, how could he bridge the chasm or chasm that separated the two of them? His advisors, of course, told him that all he had to do was command her to become his queen, and it would be done. For he was a man of immense power. Every statesman feared his wrath. Every foreign power trembled before him, and every courtier groveled in the dust uh, in the dust at the king's voice. This poor peasant girl would have no power to resist. She would have to become the queen. 
But power, even unlimited power, cannot command love. The king could force her body to be present in the palace, but he could not force love to be present in her heart. He might be able to gain her obedience this way, but coerced submission is not what he wanted. He longed for intimacy of heart and oneness of spirit, and all the power in the world cannot unlock the human heart. It must be open, must be open from within. So he met with his advisors once again, and they suggested he try to bridge the chasm by elevating her to his position. He could shower her with gifts, dress her in purple uh, and silk, and have her crown the queen. The queen. But if he brought her to his palace, if he radiated the sun of his magnificence over her, if she saw all the wealth, pomp, and power of his greatness, then she would be overwhelmed. How would he ever know if she loved him for himself or for all that he had given her? And how could she know that he loved her and would only love her still if she remained only a humble peasant? Would she be able to summon confidence enough never to remember what the king only wished to forget, that he was the king and she had been a humble maiden? Okay, so there's a page and a quarter here. Every alternate he came up with uh, came to nothing. There was only one way. So one day the king arose, took off his crown, relinquished uh, his scepter, laid aside his royal robes, and he took upon himself the life of a peasant. He dressed in rags, uh, scratched out a living in the dirt, groveled for food, and dwelt in a hovel. He did not uh, just take on the outward appearance of a servant. He became a servant. It was his actual life, his actual nature, his actual burden. He became as ragged as the one he loved so that she could be his forever. It was only the only way his raggedness became the very signature of his presence. Of course, no parable explains every aspect of the spiritual truth it communicates, but Kierkegaard's story illustrates an important point. When the Son of God became one of us, he demonstrated the incomprehensible love of God for us and his inexpressible grace towards us. Romans 5, 8, Philemons, or Philippians 2, uh, I think it's uh, Philippians uh, 2, 5 through 11, I think that's the one. And being being very nature God, he humbled himself uh, even to the point of death. In Hebrews two fourteen through eighteen, Merry Christmas from all of us at the Bush Center for Faith and Culture Explanation Point. Uh, let's just think about this story for a minute. It sounds incredible. It sounds it sounds fictitious, and it is. It's a parable, but it sounds so unreal that a king would humble himself to become an actual servant. That he would actually take on the clothing of servitude and the condition of servitude uh, to be uh, to be in a place where he could connect and relate to the, his beloved in a way that he was an equal. Uh, he was k- the king, that's true, but he assumed the position of a servant, and even more than a servant, a suffering servant. Uh, so that story is powerful. It sounds like somebody could look at the story and go, that's ridiculous that a king would do that. But that's what Jesus did. He became one of us. He experienced this life in its full measure. 
both the joys and sorrows, and he was called a man of sorrows in the, in, in the scriptures. Uh, so that was a continuous, uh, a continuous companion for him was sorrow, the sorrowness of life and the, tr- the tragedy of the fall and how it has impacted life and everything about life has been tarnished by the fall. And he came to fill the breach. Only the infinite could, could fill that, uh, that breach. The breach is finite, but it's big. And we couldn't, we couldn't be the answer to our problems. We can't solve the problems. JFK was actually incorrect when he said, you know, if we're the ones that make the problems, we have to be the ones that solve the problems. There are some problems we create that we cannot solve, and we need God's help. We need God's um, intervention to become better people and to begin to untangle the mess that we've created, both personally and social, socially and culturally. Um, so anyway, I wanted to share that story, uh, the incarnation that God became an infant. He took upon humanity, uh, the, servant, the fer- servant nature of humanity to humanity uh, to save us, and that he, uh, he clothed himself in rags to do so, not in splendor. Uh, so ponder that as we, uh, as we get into uh, more officially into uh, Christmas here as it, the Advent calendar continues to, uh, uh, continues to tick. All right, just a few things in terms of where we're headed. Um, I'm still in the first season of of this podcast. My new idea is that when I move on to a new book, which I think is going to be 18 Upbuilding Discourses, I'll create a new season. Uh, This podcast started back in March, uh, so I'll stop using the season one once I move on to a new book. I think that'll actually help as a bookmark of sorts. If somebody wants to jump in, it'll make it clear when there's been like a break. And if they want to take on a certain book with me, they'll know where to start. Right now, it's a little bit more you have to listen to the podcast and understand that. Uh, So I'll have a new season once I begin the new book, whenever that is. I'm not entirely sure. Uh, Come the new year, 2023, I'm going to host a former theology professor at Notre Dame. He was apparently the only Protestant uh, theologian at the uh, graduate school at Notre Dame's uh, School of Theology. He's a Lancaster resident now, and I heard uh, him recently give a lecture down at St. James Church. I was actually attending via Zoom. A friend had told me about it, and he's agreed to appear on the podcast, and he actually knows a lot more about uh, Kierkegaard than I do, so I'm going to be in a situation where <clears throat> I'm going to try to uh, let him uh, reveal his expertise. He has a couple concentrations of expertise, and one of them is Kierkegaard. When I listened to his lecture, I'm like, this dude really knows his stuff. Every time he had to go left or right on Kierkegaard, he absolutely nailed it. And I know enough about Kierkegaard to know when people are uh, just uh, superficially addressing what he talks about or when they really know their stuff. So I'm really excited to have him on there. I decided it's better to wait until 2023 after I get back from Sacramento. I'm not sure if I'm going to do any podcast. Uh, I'll probably do one next week because that's before I leave for Sacramento. But I'm not sure I'm going to do a podcast out in Sacramento. We'll see. might be able to do it. I mean, I have the technology to do it. I do it on my phone, so it's not a big deal. I could do it. It's not a huge issue. Um, but I'm not sure I'm going to or not. So we may uh, we may just do a quick uh, podcast next week or a longer one. Who knows? And then, um, then we'll uh, start again in 2023 and try to finish this book up. Hopefully today was helpful, encouraging, uh, things like that. 
just a personal reflection. Last Wednesday night, about a week ago, right this uh, this week, uh, a week ago, right now, <clears throat> in the afternoon, the evening. Uh, man, I started getting a really, really bad toothache. I think I hit my tooth wrong. I have one cavity in my mouth. That's not too bad for a 59-year-old. And I think I was eating some uh, raspberry jam that had seeds in it. And I think it triggered something where the cavity, and also there's uh, kind of an oral dentistry issue underneath my tooth that maybe 20 years ago, the dentist said that my tooth, or my body was trying to dissolve an adult tooth down there because uh, I thought it was a baby tooth, so it was actually decaying it from below. I had to go through all this oral surgery, and they had to patch the uh, the cavity underneath the gum line. And so ever since then, that area of my mouth has been kind of vulnerable to issues. And, man, I had a toothache uh, last Wednesday evening that lasted all through the night, could barely sleep. Um, and Thursday, it hurt really, really bad. Friday, it started to get a little bit better. And I uh, don't have dental insurance until January 1st. I decided to forego it last year. I thought I could just pay for it out of the pocket because the premiums are pretty high. But I generally don't need dental surgery. But I do have health insurance, uh, but I don't have dental insurance. So this coming year, 2023, I decided to to get dental insurance because it kind of evened out. In the end, it's the same amount of money. It's just uh, it's going to cost me the same either way. And if I have to actually get surgery, it's going to be much more expensive to pay out of pocket than it would through insurance. <laughs> so I have to wait until uh, January 1st uh, or afterwards in terms of seeing the dentist for possible examination of what's going on in my tooth. But I got to see... You know, what happens with pain that's at such a level? I mean, I have chronic knee pain, and I have some pain related to my neurological condition from having a mild, mild cerebral palsy, and I have a busted pinky, and I have occasionally a bad back. But this is all light and momentary stuff. But this toothache went right to the bone, man, literally. And as I examined it this week, uh, it's not just in my tooth. It goes below the gum line. It goes all the way down to my jaw. And I began to massage my jaw a little bit, and it was like, uh, it was so tender. And it might be tied to like a TMJ thing, I don't know, like a, you know, some kind of issue like that. Uh, so I won't know until I get to the, the dentist sometime in January. I have an appointment like January 9th or something, or 10th or 11th, when I get back from Sacramento. So I pray that my tooth does not get um, agitated to the degree it did before last week. It was so painful. And I got to see, maybe in a, in a new way, what creates patterns of addiction for people? Like if somebody has so much physical pain, it would be so tempting to take a pill, to take an opioid, to try to silence the pain because it's, it's relentless. And this pain was so bad I couldn't sleep. The only thing that relieved it was standing up and walking around, which is a good way not to get sleep. So I got like two hours sleep that night. It was awful. And I was taking a ton of aspirin and using Anabasol and trying to quell the pain that way. And it was literally driving me crazy. I couldn't take it. Um, so it taught me a sensitivity, uh, to people that go through pain, physical pain in particular, but could also be emotional, psychological pain. And it also kind of gone full circle to tie in today's podcast. The idea that God would experience weakness, that God would come to this earth and, uh, experience like relational pain, being misunderstood and criticized and laughed at. I mean, that's really painful to be laughed at. There's that difference between laughed at and laughed with, of course, um, that he would be crucified. I mean, God didn't know that before he came to this earth. He had no idea what it was like to be vulnerable because that's not an attribute of God. So even God can learn things in his infiniteness, his infinite knowledge, infinite power. 
uh, he could lay all that aside and, and take life directly like a human being would and still have the ethical nature of God, that purity uh, and that insight. Uh, Jesus had an interesting kind of cloud of his omnipotence when he was here on this earth that he saw things that other people didn't see, but he wasn't fully 100% engaged um, as the eternal one when he was here because he would that would affect his humanity. So he was God and he was man at the same time, and that's a mystery. It's hard to figure out what the proportion was, 100% of both type of thing. And he could see people's hearts, which is a godlike trait, and see them accurately. But he also assumed that humanity, he assumed that bitter pain, that bitter toothache of life, uh, where you just go crazy, where you can't, you can't run away from it. The pain is so overwhelming that you can't just uh, push it aside. And that if God would willingly take that on and experience pain and learn from it and become a, an evolved God of sorts. I don't know. It's a mystery. It's a, it's a bit of a hard thing to think about. But God, God was changed by the crucifixion and the resurrection. He experienced life in a way that he could not have had he not put on our clothes. So the mystery of the incarnation. Again, the Jews think it's a scandal that God could experience suffering in that way. Uh, or the Greeks thought it was foolishness because I thought it was just another babbler talking about airy-fairy ideas that had no application to reality. And oh, how they were wrong. Uh, so we can be thankful it is finished. Uh, the Romans and the Jews and the world thought that they had put the end to Christ, but his message lives. Find hope in him. He's the only hope that we have. And tie yourself fully to the mast of Christ, and he will take you safely to the world to come. Have a nice week.